Chapter One of In the Reign of Terror by G. A. Henty. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Jen Raimundo. A Journey to France. I don't know what to say, my dear. Why, surely, James, you are not thinking for a moment of letting him go. Well, I don't know. Yes, I'm certainly thinking of it, though I haven't at all made up my mind. There are advantages and disadvantages. Oh, but it is such a long way, and to live among those French people who have been doing such dreadful things, attacking the Bastille, and, as I have heard you say, passing all sorts of revolutionary laws, and holding their king and queen almost as prisoners in Paris. Well, they won't eat him, my dear. The French Assembly, or the National Assembly, or whatever it ought to be called, has certainly been passing laws limiting the power of the king and abolishing many of the rights and privileges of the nobility and clergy but you must remember that the condition of the vast body of the french nation has been terrible we have long conquered our liberties and indeed never even in the height of the feudal system were the mass of the english people more enslaved as have been the peasants of france we must not be surprised therefore if in their newly recovered freedom they push matters to an excess at first but all this will right itself and no doubt a constitutional form of government somewhat similar to our own will be established but all this is no reason against harry's going out there you don't suppose that the french people are going to fly at the throats of the nobility why even in the heat of the civil war there was no instance of any personal wrong being done to the families of those engaged in the struggle and in only in two or three cases after repeated risings were any even of the leaders executed no harry will be just as safe there as he would be here as to the distance it's nothing like so far as if he went to india for example i don't see any great chance of his setting the thames on fire at home his school report is always the same conduct fair progress in study moderate which means as i take it that he just scrapes along that's it isn't it harry yes father i think so you see every one cannot be at the top of the form that's a very true observation my boy it is clear that if there are twenty boys in a class nineteen fathers have to be disappointed still of course one would like to be the father who is not disappointed i stick to my work the boy said but there are always fellows who seem to know just the right words without taking any trouble about it it comes to them i suppose what do you say to this idea yourself harry i don't know sir the boy said doubtfully and i don't know his father agreed at any rate we will sleep upon it i am clear that the offer is not to be lightly rejected dr sandwith was a doctor in chelsea chelsea in the year seventeen ninety was a very different place to chelsea of the present day it was a pretty suburban hamlet and was indeed a very fashionable quarter here many of the nobility and personages connected with the court had their houses and broad country fields and lanes separated it from the stir and din of london dr sandwith had a good practice but he had also a large family harry was at westminster going backwards and forwards across the fields to school so far he had evinced no predilection for any special career he was a sturdy well-built lad of some sixteen years old he was as his father said not likely to set the thames on fire in any way he was as undistinguished in the various sports popular among boys in those days as he was in his lessons he was as good as the average but no better had fought some tough fights with boys of his own age and had shown endurance rather than brilliancy in the ordinary course of things he would probably in three or four years time have chosen some profession and indeed his father had already settled in his mind that as harry was not likely to make any great figure in life in the way of intellectual capacity the best thing would be to obtain for him a commission in his majesty's service 
as to which with a doctor's connection among people of influence there would not be any difficulty he had however said nothing as yet to the boy on the subject the fact that harry had three younger brothers and four sisters and that dr sandwith who was obliged to keep up a good position sometimes found it difficult to meet his various expenses made him perhaps more inclined to view favourably the offer he had that morning received than would otherwise have been the case two years before he had attended professionally a young french nobleman attached to the embassy it was from him that the letter which had been the subject of conversation had been received it ran as follows dear dr sandwith since my return from paris i have frequently spoken to my brother the marquis of st Caux, respecting the difference of education between your english boys and our own nothing struck me more when i was in london than your great schools with us the children of good families are almost always brought up at home they learn to dance and defence but have no other exercise for their limbs and they lack the air of manly independence which struck me in english boys they are more genteel i do not know the word in your language which expresses it they carry themselves better they are not so rough they are more polite there are advantages in both systems but for myself i like yours much the best my brother is to some extent a convert to my view there are no such schools to which he could send his sons in france for what large schools we have are under the management of the fathers and the boys have none of that freedom which is the distinguishing point of the english system of education even if there were such schools i am sure that madame my sister-in-law would never hear of her sons being sent there since this is so the marquis has concluded that the best thing would be to have an english boy of good family as their companion he would of course study with them under their masters he would play and ride with them and would be treated as one of themselves they would learn something of english from him which would be useful if they adopt the diplomatic profession he would learn french which might also be useful to him but of course the great point which my brother desires is that his sons should acquire something of the manly independence of thought and action which distinguishes english boys having arranged this much i thought of you i know that you have several sons if you have one of them fourteen to sixteen years and you would like him to take such a position for two or three years i should be glad indeed to secure such a companion for my nephews if not would you do me the favour of looking round among your acquaintances and find us a lad such as we need he must be a gentleman and a fair type of the boy we are speaking of i may say that my brother authorises me to offer in his name in addition to all expenses two thousand francs a year to the young gentleman who will thus benefit his sons i do not think that the political excitement which is agitating paris need to be taken into consideration now that great concessions have been made to the representatives of the nation it is not at all probable that there will be any recurrence of such popular tumults as that which brought about the capture of the bastille but in any case this need not weigh in the decision as my brother resides for the greater part of the year in his chateau near dijon in burgundy far removed from the troubles in the capital the more dr sandwith thought over the matter the more he liked it there were comparatively few englishmen in those days who spoke the french language it was indeed considered part of the education of a young man of good family to make what was called the grand tour of europe under the charge of a tutor after leaving the university but these formed a very small proportion of society and indeed the frequent wars which had since the stuarts lost the throne of england occurred between the two countries had greatly interfered with continental travel even now the subjects of france and england were engaged in a desperate struggle in india although there was peace between the court of versailles and st james a knowledge of the french language then would be likely to be of great utility to harry if he entered the army his expenses at westminster would be saved and the two hundred and forty pounds which he would acquire during his three years stay in france 
would be very useful to him on his first start in life after breakfast next morning dr sandwith asked harry to take a turn in the garden with him for the holidays had just begun what do you think of this harry i have not thought much about it one way or the other sir harry said looking up with a smile it seemed to me better that you should do the thinking for both of us i might perhaps be better able to judge whether it would be advantageous or otherwise for you to accept the offer but you must be the best judge as to whether you would like to accept it or not i can't quite make up my mind as to that sir i like school very much and i like being at home i don't want to learn frenchified ways nor to eat frogs and snails and all sorts of nastiness still it would be fun going to a place so different to england and hearing no english spoken and learning all their rum ways and getting to jabber french it might be very useful to you in the army harry and then the doctor stopped suddenly the army harry exclaimed in a tone of astonished delight oh sir do you really think of my going into the army you never said a word about that before i should like that immensely that slipped out harry for i did not mean to say anything about it until you had left school still if you go to france i do not know why you should not keep that before you i don't think the army is a very good profession but you do not seem to have any marked talent for anything else you don't like the idea of medicine or the church and you were almost heartbroken when i wanted you to accept the offer of your uncle john of a seat in his counting-house it seems to me that the army would suit you better than anything else and i have no doubt that i could get you a commission now whenever we fight france is sure to be on the other side and i think that it would be of great advantage to you to have a thorough knowledge of french a thing which very few officers in our army possess if you accept this offer you will have the opportunity of attaining this and at the same time of earning a nice little sum which would pay for your outfit and supply you with pocket-money for some time yes sir it would be first-rate harry exclaimed excitedly oh please accept the offer i should like it of all things and even if i do get ever so skinny on frogs and thin soup i can get fat on roast beef again when i get back that is all nonsense harry about frogs and starving the french style of cookery differs from ours but they eat just as much and although they may not as a rule be as broad and heavy as englishmen that is simply a characteristic of race the latin peoples are of slighter build than the teutonic as to their food you know that the romans who were certainly judges of good living considered the snail a great luxury and i dare say ate frogs too a gentleman who had made the grand tour told me that he had tasted them in paris and found them very delicate eating you may not like the living quite at first but you will soon get over that and once accustomed to it you will like it quite as well as our solid joints my principal objection to your going lies quite in another direction public opinion in france is much disturbed in the national assembly which is the same as our parliament there is a great spirit of resistance to the royal authority something like a revolution has already been accomplished and the king is little more than a prisoner but that would surely make no difference to me sir no i don't see that it should harry still it would cause your mother a good deal of anxiety i don't see it could make any difference harry repeated and you see sir when i go into the army and there is war mother would be a great deal more anxious you mean harry the doctor said with a smile that whether her anxiety begins a little sooner or later does not make much difference i don't think i quite mean that sir harry said but yes he added frankly after a moment's thought i suppose i did but i really don't see that supposing there were any troubles in france it could possibly make any difference to me even if there were a civil war such as we had in england they would not interfere with boys 
no i don't see that it would make any difference and the chance is so remote that it need not influence our decision of course if war broke out between the two countries the marquis would see that you were sent back safely well then harry i am to consider that your decision is in favour of your accepting this appointment if you please sir i am sure it will be a capital thing for me and i have no doubt it will be great fun of course at first it will be strange to hear them all jabbering in french but i suppose i shall soon pick it up and so mrs sandwith was informed by her husband that after talking it over with harry he had concluded that the proposed arrangement would really be an excellent one and that it would be a great pity to let such an opportunity slip the good lady was for a time tearful in her forebodings that harry would be starved for in those days it was a matter of national opinion that our neighbours across the channel fed on the most meagre of diet but she was not in the habit of disputing her husband's will and when the letter of acceptance had been sent off she busied herself in preparing harry's clothes for his long absence he ought to be measured for several suits my dear she said to her husband made bigger and bigger to allow for his growing nonsense my dear you do not suppose that clothes cannot be purchased in france give him plenty of underlinen but the fewer jackets and trousers he takes over the better it will be much better for him to get clothes out there of the same fashion as other people the boy will not want to be stared at wherever he goes the best rule is always to dress like people around you i shall give him money and directly he gets there he can get a suit or two made by the tailor who makes for the lads he is going to be with the english are no more loved in france than the french are here and though harry has no reason to be ashamed of his nationality there is no occasion for him to draw the attention of every one he meets to it by going about in a dress which would seem to them peculiar in due time a letter was received from comte auguste de saint Caux, stating that the marquis had requested him to write and say that he was much gratified to hear that one of the doctor's own sons was coming over to be a companion and friend to his boys and that he was sending off in the course of two days a gentleman of his household to calais to meet him and conduct him to paris on young mr sandwith's arrival at calais he was to go at once to the hotel lyon d'or and ask for monsieur du tillet during the intervening time harry had been very busy he had to say good-bye to all his friends who looked some with envy some with pity upon him for the idea of a three years residence in france was a novel one to all he was petted and made much of at home especially by his sisters who regarded him in the light of a hero about to undertake a strange and hazardous adventure three days after the arrival of the letter of the marquis dr sandwith and harry started by stage for dover and the doctor put his son on board the packet sailing for calais the evening before he gave him much good advice as to his behaviour you will see much that is new and perhaps a good deal that you don't like harry but it is better for you never to criticise or give a hostile opinion about things you would not like it if a french boy came over here and made unpleasant remarks about english ways and manners take things as they come and do as others do avoid all comparisons between french and english customs fall in with the ways of those around you and adopt as far as you can the polite and courteous manner which is general among the french and in which i must say they are far ahead of us if questioned you will of course give your opinion frankly and modestly it is the independence of thought among english boys which has attracted the attention and approval of auguste de st Caux. be natural and simple giving yourself no airs and permitting none on the part of the lads you are with their father says you are to be treated as their equal but upon the other hand do not be ever on the lookout for small slights and bear with perfect good temper any little ridicule your to them foreign ways and manners may excite i need not tell you to be always straightforward honest and true for of those qualities i think you possess a fair share above all things restrain any tendency to use your fists fighting comes naturally to english boys 
but in france it is considered as brutal and degrading a blow is a deadly insult and would never be forgiven so whatever the provocation abstain from striking any one should you find that in any way your position is made intolerable you will of course appeal to the marquis and unless you obtain redress you will come home you will find no difficulty in travelling when once you understand the language but avoid anything like petty complaints i trust there will be no reason for complaints at all and that you will find your position an exceedingly pleasant one as soon as you become accustomed to it but should occasion arise bear my words in mind harry promised to follow his father's advice implicitly but in his own mind he wondered what fellows did when they quarrelled if they were not allowed to fight however he supposed that he should under the circumstances do the same as french boys whatever that might be as soon as the packet was once fairly beyond the harbour harry's thoughts were effectually diverted from all other matters by the motion of the sailing boat and he was soon in a state of prostration in which he remained until seven hours later the packet entered calais harbour dr sandwith had requested the captain to allow one of his men to show harry the way to the lion d'or harry had pulled himself together a little as the vessel entered the still water in the harbour and was staring at the men in their blue blouses and wooden shoes at the women in their quaint and picturesque attire when a sailor touched him on the shoulder now young sir the captain tells me i'm to show you the way to your hotel which is your box harry pointed out his trunk the sailor threw it on his shoulder and harry with a feeling of bewilderment followed him along the gangway to the shore here he was accosted by an officer what does he say he asked the sailor he asks for your passport harry fumbled in his breast pocket for the document which his father had obtained for him from the foreign office duly viseed by the french ambassador notifying that henry sandwith age sixteen height five feet eight hair brown eyes grey nose short mouth large was about to reside in france in the family of the marquis de st Col. the officer glanced it over and then returned it to harry with a polite bow which harry in some confusion endeavoured to imitate what does the fellow want to bow and scrape like that for he muttered to himself as he followed his guide an englishman would just have nodded and said all right what can a fellow want more i should like to know well i suppose i shall get accustomed to it and shall take to bowing and scraping as a matter of course the lion d'or was close at hand in reply to the sailor's question the landlord said that monsieur du tillet was within the sailor put down the trunk pocketed the coin harry gave him and with a good luck young master went out taking with him as harry felt the last link to england he turned and followed the landlord the latter mounted a flight of stairs knocked at a door and opened it a young gentleman desires to see monsieur du tillet he said and harry entered a tall big man whose proportions at once disappointed harry's preconceived notions as to the smallness and leanness of frenchmen rose from the table at which he was writing monsieur saint louis he said interrogatively i am glad to see you harry did not understand the latter portion of the remark but he caught the sound of his name that's all right he said nodding how do you do monsieur du tillet the french gentleman bowed harry bowed and then they looked at each other there was nothing more to say a smile stole over harry's face and broke into a frank laugh the frenchman smiled put his hand on harry's shoulder and said brave garçon and harry felt they were friends Monsieur du Tillet's face bore an expression of easy good temper. He wore a wig with long curls, he had a soldier's bearing, and a scar on his left cheek. His complexion was dark and red, his eyebrows black and bushy. After a pause he said, Are you hungry? and then put imaginary food to his mouth. You mean will I eat anything? Harry translated. Yes, that I will if there's anything fit to eat. I begin to feel as hungry as a hunter, and no wonder, for I am as hollow as a drum. 
His nod was a sufficient answer. Monsieur du Tillet took his hat, opened the door, and bowed for Harry to precede him. Harry hesitated, but believing it would be the polite way to do as he was told, returned the bow and went out. The Frenchman put his hand on his shoulder, and they went downstairs together and took their seats in the salon, where his companion gave an order, and in two or three minutes a bowl of broth was placed before each of them. It fully answered Harry's ideas as to the thinness of French soup, for it looked like dirty water with a few pieces of bread and some scraps of vegetables floating in it. He was astonished at the piece of bread, nearly a yard long, placed on the table. Monsieur du Tillet cut a piece off and handed it to him. He broke a portion of it into his broth and found, when he tasted it, that it was much nicer than it looked. It's not so bad after all, he thought to himself. Anyhow, bread seems plentiful, so there's no fear of my starving. He followed his companion's example and made his way steadily through a number of dishes all new and strange to him. Neither his sight nor his taste gave him the slightest indication as to what meat he was eating. I suppose it's all right, he concluded. But what people can want to make such messes of their food for I can't make out. A slice of good roast beef is worth the lot of it, but really it isn't nasty. Some of the dishes are not bad at all if one only knew what they were made of. Monsieur de Tillet offered him some wine, which he tasted but shook his head, for it seemed rough and sour. But he poured himself out some water. Presently a happy idea seized him. He touched the bread and said interrogatively, Bread? Monsieur de Tillet at once replied, Pain, which Harry repeated after him. The ice thus broken, conversation began, and Harry soon learned the French for knife, fork, spoon, plate, and various other articles, and felt that he was fairly on the way towards talking French. After the meal was over, Monsieur du Tillet rose and put on his hat, and signed to Harry to accompany him. They strolled through the town, went down to the quays, and looked at the fishing boats. Harry was feeling more at home now, and asked the French name for everything he saw, repeating the word over and over again to himself until he felt sure that he should remember it, and then asking the name of some fresh object. The next morning they started in the post-wagon for Paris, and arrived there after thirty-six hours' travel. Harry was struck with the roads, which were far better tended and kept than those in England. The extreme flatness of the country surprised him, and, except in the quaintness of the villages and the variety of the church towers, he saw little to admire during the journey. If it is all like this, he thought to himself, I don't see that they have any reason for calling it La Belle France. Of Paris he saw little. A blue-bloused porter carried his trunk what seemed to Harry a long distance from the place where the conveyance stopped. The streets here were quiet and almost deserted after the busy thoroughfares of the central city. The houses stood, for the most part, back from the street, with high walls and heavy gates. "'Here we are at last,' his guide said, as he halted before a large and massive gateway, surmounted by a coat of arms with supporters carved in stonework. He rang at the bell, which was opened by a porter in livery, who bowed profoundly upon seeing Monsieur du Tillet. Passing through the door, Harry found himself in a spacious hall, decorated with armor and arms. As he crossed the threshold, Monsieur de Tillet took his hand and shook it heartily, saying, Welcome! Harry understood the action, though not the words, and nodded, saying, I think I shall get on capitally if they are all as jolly as you are. Then they both laughed, and Harry looked round, wondering what was coming next. The Marquis and his family are all away at their chateau near Dijon, his companion said, waving his hand. We shall stay a day or two to rest ourselves after our journey, and then start to join them. He led Harry into a great salon magnificently furnished, pointed to the chairs and looking-glasses and other articles of furniture, all swathed up in coverings. And the lad understood at once that the family were away. This was a relief to him, 
He was getting on capitally with Monsieur du Tillet, but shrank from the prospect of meeting so many strange faces. A meal was speedily served in a small and comfortably furnished apartment, and Harry concluded that although he might not be able to decide on the nature of his food, it was really nice, and that there was no fear whatever of his falling away in flesh. Monsieur du Tillet pressed him to try the wine again, and this he found to be a vast improvement upon the vintage he had tasted at Calais. After breakfast next morning they started for a walk, and Harry was delighted with the Louvre, the Tuileries, the Palais Royal, and other public buildings, which he could not but acknowledge were vastly superior to anything he had seen in London. Then he was taken to a tailor's, the Marquis having commissioned his guide to carry out Dr. Sandwith's request in this matter. Monsieur du Tillet looked interrogatively at Harry as he entered the shop, as if to ask if he understood why he was taken there. Harry nodded, for indeed he was glad to see that no time was to be lost, for he was already conscious that his dress differed considerably from that of French boys. Several street gamins had pointed at him and made jeering remarks, which, without understanding the words, Harry felt to be insulting, and would, had he heard them in the purlieus of Westminster, have considered as a challenge to battle. He had not, however, suffered altogether unavenged, for upon one occasion Monsieur du Tillet turned sharply round and caught one offender so smartly with his cane that he ran howling away. They are awful guys, Harry thought as he looked at the French boys he met, but it's better to be a guy than to be chafed by every boy one meets, especially if one is not to be allowed to fight. It was, therefore, with a feeling of satisfaction that he turned into the tailor's shop. The proprietor came up, bowing, as Harry thought, in a most cringing sort of way to his companion. Monsieur du Tillet gave some orders, and the tailor unrolled a variety of pieces of cloth and other materials for Harry's inspection. The lad shook his head and turned to his guide, and, pointing to the goods, asked him to choose the things which were most suitable for him. Monsieur du Tillet understood the appeal and ordered four suits. Two of these were for ordinary wear, another was, Harry concluded, for the evening, and the fourth for ceremonial occasions. The coats were cut long, but very open in front, and were far too scanty to button. The waistcoats were long and embroidered, a white and ample handkerchief went round the throat and was tied loosely, with long ends edged with lace falling in front, knee-breeches with white stockings and shoes with buckles completed the costume. Harry looked on with a smile of amusement, and burst into a hearty laugh when the garments were fixed upon, for the idea of himself dressed out in these seemed to him ludicrous in the extreme. How they would laugh at home, he thought to himself, if they could see me in these things, the girls would give me no peace, and wouldn't there be an uproar if I were to turn up in them in Dean's yard and march up school? Harry was then measured. When this was done he took out his purse, which contained fifty guineas, for his father had thought it probable that the clothes he would require would cost more than they would in London, and he wished him to have a good store of pocket-money until he received the first installment of his pay. Monsieur du Tillet, however, shook his head and motioned to him to put up his purse, and Harry supposed that it was not customary to pay for things in France until they were delivered. Then his companion took him into another shop, and pointing to his own ruffles, intimated that Harry would require some linen of this kind to be worn when in full dress. Harry signified that his friend should order what was necessary, and half a dozen shirts with deep ruffles at the wrist and breast were ordered. This brought their shopping to an end. They remained three days in Paris, at the end of which time Harry's clothes were delivered. The following morning a carriage with the arms of the Marquis emblazoned upon it came up to the door, and they started. The horses were fat and lazy, and Harry, who had no idea how far they were going, thought that the journey was likely to be a long one if this was the pace at which they were to travel. Twelve miles out they changed horses at a post-station, their own returning to Paris, 
and after this had relays at each station and travelled at a pace which seemed to harry to be extraordinarily rapid they slept twice upon the road the third day the appearance of the country altogether changed and instead of the flat plains which harry had begun to think extended all over france they were now among hills higher than anything he had ever seen before towards the afternoon they crossed the range and began to descend and as evening approached monsieur du tillet pointed to a building standing on rising ground some miles away and said that is the chateau End of chapter one recording by Jean Raimundo.